One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, lots of talk and speculation of what's going to be contained in the budget. And the latest that's getting commentary uh, today is a possible increase in the monthly child benefit payment. Now, child benefit payment, it's one of those universal payments. If you have a child in this country, you're entitled to your monthly, as some people still recall, still uh, call it the children's uh, allowance. So about 650,000 families receive monthly uh, child benefit and it's one of an increase in that monthly payment is something that it looks like is on the table for the discussions that are ongoing between the uh, coalition. The possibility of increasing the core rate. Now it's paid in respect of 1.2 million children across uh, the country. Uh, it is being discussed as a possibility. You know, obviously the ministers are doing all of the preliminary work around the budget which will be for budget 2024 but it will be announced in October. Now the Taoiseach, of course, Leo Varadkar, he has pledged for quite some time that he wants to address child poverty levels in Ireland. And for in order to do that, a number of different measures have to be uh, examined, you know, including, for example, things like in looking at targeted payments for low income workers. There's also been talk of a repeat of the one-off double child benefit uh, payment in last year's budget, but it's to try to get that mix right. Do you target the payments or do you give it to everyone? I mean, the one thing about going down the route of, say, a double uh, child benefit payment is everybody gets it, the low income, the middle income and the higher uh, income. Now, an increase, if they do go down the route and if they do decide to give a, a universal monthly child benefit increase uh, to families, that obviously would, pro- would prove popular with all families. But the Department of Finance, the tax strategy group, uh, they're the papers that prepare in advance of the budget. They show that an increase in child benefit rates would have the greatest impact on the lowest income families. One senior government source noted that the increase in the core rate would be expensive though. For example, a 10 euro increase that would cost the exchequer roughly 150 million euro and of course it would be 150 million euro every year uh, if the increase was put into the child uh, benefit. But it was also noted it would help all families 
including those whose incomes, in, incomes mean they just narrowly miss out on eligibility for other supports, you know, things like the working family payment and kind of that squeezed middle people who are just within the reach. They're not, they don't have a lot of money, but they don't fall into their income doesn't befall, doesn't fall just a little bit low enough for them to get some kind of extra payments like the working family payment. So a target is thing like this would certainly benefit uh, them. Now, further reductions in uh, childcare fees, that's uh, something that's been spoken about. Free book scheme to extend that to secondary level schools. We spoke about that only last week on the programme. They're looking at things like additional funding for an expansion of the hot hot school dinners, an increase for various parental leave uh, schemes. All of those different options are being uh, explored. And Budget 2024, we now know, is going to include 5.2 billion in spending measures and then there'll be about 1.1 billion worth of uh, tax cuts. Now, people may remember child benefit. It was slashed in the past. It was done by successive Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael Labour governments. And it was done, of course, between 2010 and uh, 2014. It was all part of the austerity uh, measures. And of course, that was mandated under the EU IMF uh, bailout. At the time, child benefit was at, I think it was at the highest it ever was. It was €166 per child. That would have been back in uh, 2010. But then there were subsequent cuts to it and it went down to €130 per per month. Then it was partially restored in budgets in 2015 and in 2016. I think a fiver went on 2015 and on the following year. And that brings it up to the current level where it is now. It's €140 per child per month at the moment. Leo Varadkar underscored his intention to target levels of uh, child poverty again this week in a plan that he uh, published, which also raised the possibility of providing free or very low cost childcare for families. Obviously, these are families with the lowest uh, income. And the Special Child Poverty and Wellbeing Programme Office, which was set up within the Overadkar's department, that's going to focus on six priority uh, areas. They're looking at income supports. They're looking at early learning and childcare. They're looking at cutting education costs. They're going to look at family homelessness, uh, public health and well-being, and also increasing participation in culture and arts for young people in uh, poverty. And Leo Varadkar said ending child poverty is a core ambition of this government and he's going to make sure that the next budget very much reflects our ambitions for uh, children. So I'm assuming any family listening uh, to us at the moment would very much welcome an increase in the child benefit uh, payment But then you'll have other families listening, low income families who will be saying that the fairest way is to target the low income. Don't give a universal increase because that benefits the higher income families who really don't need the child benefit, even though they get it every single month. So you will get you will get a divide in attitudes. But I think overall, it certainly is good news for families because many families, even the ones, you know, two incomes coming into the household may appear on the outside to be doing very well. But these are people who can have very high mortgages, uh, for example, if they're very young children, they could be paying a lot out on childcare costs uh, as well. And of course, 
anyone who is facing back to school at the moment uh, will know, even though this year it's a little bit easier for families with children in primary school with the free books, but there still is a lot of additional costs for getting children out the door with the bag packed in their new uniform, new shoes and out the door to start the school term. So anything that can be done to cut education costs, I think will be broadly welcomed as well. Some of your thoughts on uh, what is going to be contained in the next uh, budget and this promise from Leo Varadkar, the ending child poverty core ambition of this government and he's going to make sure that the October budget is going to reflect their ambitions for children and the big talking point is an increase in the monthly child benefit is on the table in the coalition budget talks. One listener says, I work over 10 hours a day. I get taxed to the hilt to pay for other people's kids. What a joke this country uh, is. I can't have children. Why should I pay for other people's children? It is madness, says a, a listener. And somebody else says, if couples don't have sufficient income, why on earth are they being irresponsible by having so many uh, children those people need to grow up? But, you know, I mean, in fairness, that's a bit unkind. People can have children and then suddenly find them so that their income has gone down for whatever reason, if they lose their job or, or whatever, or through illness or anything can go wrong. So I think that's probably a little bit of an unfair comment. And someone else says, Patricia, Leo is promising everything for the children of this country. First, I hope that his promises are aimed at the Irish uh, children. If all his, if he has all his promises uh, to take Irish, okay, where, where are all his promises to take Irish families out of homelessness? I think is what the what the sentence should be. I think people will realise that these promises are only for votes. I hope people will remember the last uh, three years and what this government has done to the country. That somebody not happy with the current uh, government. 0818 103 103. Our lines are open and a reminder that the Premier League Live is back for the 2023-2024 uh, campaign and it's live on c103.ie with Trevor Welsh this Saturday from midday powered by Talk Sport. We'll be bringing you live coverage Arsenal versus Knott's Forest, that's at 12.30. Brighton are taking on Luton at three in the afternoon and the 5.30 kickoff will see Newcastle versus Aston Villa. That's the Premier League Live online with Harvey Norman, your home of the big screen. You can listen this Saturday on the C103 app or you can go to c103.ie. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Today on C103. The expansion of the GP visit cards to children aged six and seven, as well as for adults who earn less than the median income, was announced last month by the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly, and it's due to begin to be rolled out in September. So, what effect is this going to have on current GP practices? Suzanne Rogers is with Social Justice Ireland, and Suzanne joins me uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Suzanne. Good morning, thanks for having us. Well, you're, you're very welcome. Are you concerned that without an expansion of the current service that many GPs are simply not going to be able to cope with an influx of patients with a free GP visit card? Before, I mean, this is a really welcome announcement. I, I want to start off with the positive. So okay. This is a really, really welcome announcement. This is something that, you know, a lot of organisations would have been calling for to make sure that you know, anybody with any kind of vulnerability, anybody who, who needs access to a GP would get it. So this is brilliant. However, it does link in, I suppose, to that policy coherence piece that we're always talking about and evidence-based policy decisions that we're talking about. So having a right is one thing, but then realising it is something else. And when we actually look 
you know, before this announcement, people were finding it difficult to get GP appointments. And when you look at some of the statistics here, like this is from April, one in 10 of the population are already without a full-time GP because so many doctors, family doctors have actually closed their patient list. So this would just be that concern, as brilliant as it is, um, you know, was there was there sort of joined up thinking between allowing this, you know, and, and pushing this forward and making this happen and then making sure, obviously, that the resources were there to deliver on this promise? Yeah, because certainly we would hear, Suzanne, here at the radio station, we are forever hearing from people exactly what you were saying, having difficulty trying to even get an appointment. I mean, you can forget about same day appointment. But the bigger issue is the difficulty in trying to sign up to if you move to an area trying to get a GP practice. We recently had a GP practice that closed in Charleville because the two doctors retired, which is they're quite entitled to do. And it's like 300 patients, nowhere to go because all the the other surgeries uh, were full. How do we get around that and what do you believe the government needs to do? It's it's a really difficult one, I think, because I do believe that we have the, you know, if, if you look at if you look at sort of our, our third level ed- educational attainment levels, this is not because we have we lack the qualified staff. So you know what I mean. Like you can see that in in our in our in our third level system, you can see we have well trained staff. We're still linked up with the rest of Europe. We're still linked up with the rest of the world. So we've got people who can travel from other countries to come in here and fill these fill these jobs. Um, I believe a lot of it would be to down down to things like uh, accommodation costs. So if you're if you're a young you know graduate leaving college and entering into entering into your working life, it can actually be very very difficult to find somewhere affordable to live. So if somebody maybe a young doctor wanted to take over that practice in Charleville, is is that an expensive place to live? Can they access you know what I mean? Yeah. Affordable rental accommodation while they're starting their business. And I'm always conscious as well. Like I was doing a little bit of reading for this. And uh, the only thing I could find out was, say, from 2017, I think, we have 6.26 GPs per 10,000 population, which is broadly similar to a lot of European countries. But as you said, they're retiring faster than we can replace them. And I'm always, again, one of the things I'd read was that a lot of the younger GPs coming through would like to maybe enter a practice, you know, as opposed to running a practice. And I'm conscious of that, like running a business is an entirely different skill. Like, thankfully, I have access to a GP. He has he has to rent the property. He has to pay all of the staff that they're, you know, the non non-medical staff. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a huge job just being a GP, never mind then having to run an entire business as well. So you could see where a lot of the younger people coming up would maybe like to join a bigger practice as opposed to going into... And starting you know, up themselves. Of, yeah, yeah, that kind and, of family yeah, setup and, where it's and you. Th- that, that's why I think the rural areas are always much more panicked when a doctor decides to retire because it's hard to encourage somebody to come into a rural area. And, and again, we could see that from, from the stats like that access to things like hospital access, things like supermarkets, access to things like GPs are obviously, the gaps are much longer in rural Ireland. So somebody in a city might have a one or two kilometre uh, trek to their nearest doctor. Those distances get much, much, much longer once you get out into rural Ireland. So that, that's exactly it. Like it, it is, it's, 
I think it's, it's a really, it's a complicated space to be in. So they do, they need to be supported in this. They need to make sure, you know, it needs to be worth your while. I mean, imagine, I don't know how long it takes to train to be a doctor, but it's not a couple of years. No, You know no. what I mean? It, it, it's, a com- it's a vocation. It is a commitment. It's something that you hear, you know, you'll hear 11 and 12 year olds talking about what they want to be when they grow up. Like people are very determined they already know from such a young age that this is the area that they want to get into and and you know and, and for things like you know running a business access to affordable accommodation you'd hate to think that they would be the barriers that would be in place you know for somebody to be able to to enter into this but it is it's and again I'm very conscious as well like our population is growing mm-hmm. so we we've a huge influx um over the last year of of people coming in from from different parts of the world particularly Ukraine almost 80,000 you you know women and young children so they all they need were, a doctor they all I'm you know I mean just in terms of the mental health support that they obviously must need as well like they all need access to this and then we're aging as well so at the moment they have I think what's called a youth bulge so we have a relatively young population but we are aging rapidly which is brilliant again we're living longer this is a real success story but that is obviously going to put much more pressure as well as you said especially in rural Ireland as we age we need to have access to those sort of local supports, the GP supports, so that we're not going into the A&E, that we're not turning up in places where we shouldn't be. You know, we should be able to access the care we need in our communities, in in local healthcare centres. So definitely they're going to have to, you know, look at the whole spread of GPs and see what can be done to support them. Yeah, and and that's why when, you know, they, they, there's a big fanfare made about these announcements. And as you say, it was fantastic and it's brilliant news. And for families that are struggling to hear that the six and seven year olds will be able to go into the doctor to hear that people, you know, on, on an average wage will eventually be getting, I think it's about half a million people by the, will under what was announced will get a GP only card. And it seems fantastic but it looks like they didn't even go and talk to the GPs about it because as soon as the GPs heard about it, they've all come out and saying, look, we are already having, you know, um, waiting times are already being created in GP practices. This is only going to get worse. And a GP as well, ideally, I mean, you know yourself, when you go to a GP, you don't want to feel that he's watching the clock over your head as you're telling him your symptoms as well. So, I mean, I know even with my GP, I always try and get in really early because... God help you if you go in later on in the afternoon because, you know, he's only supposed to give so much time to each patient and he always goes over because that's who he is, you know. But it, it can be it can be a 45, 50 minute wait sometimes between, you know, your appointed time and when you actually get in to see him. So, I mean, these people are really, they're trying to do their best. This is, you know, I, again, I, I kind of think you get into something like medicine because you genuinely want to help people and make people better. Um and what you would hate to see the services reduced, and as a result of that, you know that if you had, if you had an extra, however many patients, that you're actually going to have to cut back your time to maybe seven minutes or ten minutes instead of fifteen. So, like nobody wants that either. We don't want to feel like we're on a conveyor belt either. Mm-hmm. So again, it you know for us everything goes back to that evidence-based policy. You know, again, like that six point two point, you know, six point two uh, GPs per per head of capita. But you know, again, there'll be there'll be disparities across the country. There's bound to be more in urban settings. There's bound to be more in in bigger towns and villages. All of that needs to be taken into account. And again, I think that 
the population changing that we're seeing as well, I really think needs to be taken into account. Okay, so they so the beginning of the rollout of this for the six and seven year olds, I think it's the 11th of September is when that gets rolled out, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, and then yeah. uh, there's about um, there's over four hundred thousand then adults that are going to to get it. But that's that is going to be um, uh, later. So as I say, what a great scheme. But let's uh, let's see what happens in principle. And just before I let you go, Susan, uh, Suzanne, I, I started off the program by picking up a piece from the, uh, the papers uh, today on childhood poverty and what the Taoiseach is prov- promising to end uh, childhood pov- poverty. Core ambition for his government. And one of the things that they're looking at is an increase in the monthly child benefit uh, payment. Would you be in favour of that at Social Justice Ireland? Is that the way to go? The the universal payments, I suppose, again, always prompt a, a conversation. And I think what we've seen over the last couple of years, especially the last 18 months, is that you do have, because obviously this is a universal payment, so low-income households will get an increase as well as you know couples on six-figure salaries. But what we're seeing is, and what we're hearing more and more of, I suppose, is is those those households who earn just enough to not qualify for any social welfare supports, who have found the last year, year and a half really, really difficult. So I think an increase in child benefit, um, you know, would 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 be welcome. If it could be more targeted, that'd be brilliant. So you know, if you could kind of look at the lower income households, the households where children are living in poverty. Uh, and, and maybe target, maybe put in extra support for that would be great. Because I, I always think like childhood poverty, children in poverty, that's family poverty. It's not a thing where the family's doing okay and the kid just can't get its act together, you know. Yeah. Like, these, these are families that live in poverty. So it's a much bigger, again, it's a much bigger conversation. It's about the affordability of housing. It's about, the, you know, the, the, the work intensity in the household. It's about educational attainment levels of parents because children growing up in poverty tend to be adults who continue to live their lives in poverty and then have children who will continue on. So but we see that cycle of poverty, don't we? It runs down oh, through the yeah, generations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and of yeah. course, education is one way out of that. Education, definitely. And I think, you know, even the conversations then about being, you know, resilient within the workplace, a little bit of education, that constantly upskilling. Like I think, like I did my leave insert in the 80s, we had to have good handwriting because everywhere you went, there was no computers. You That's had to right, have, yeah. You know, I remember working in, in shops and doing stock takes by hand, like reams of paper that you'd fill in, yeah. <laughs> you know, 10 by 2, this kind of thing. And then obviously you got a bit then at some stage. So the skills that I needed, the skills that I left school with, uh, not all of them are, are, are worth anything in this day and age. So constantly reskilling, constantly upskilling to be able to access and, and change as, as the workplace changes and not get left behind. Like I, I'm conscious again, you know, in the 80s, a lot of a lot of the girls in school would have left there after group cert. Yeah. Because um, you could get a job at 15, 16. But it, you can kind of see, though, where the skills that you have at 15 and 16, if you're not constantly updating them, you're still doing those jobs now at 55 and 56. And they're and, the low-paid jobs. And they're hard on the body. Yeah, know? yeah. They are hard point. on the body. That's a good so, point. You know, All right. I, well, let's wait and see. Does, uh, I mean, Leo is adamant that this budget is going to reflect the ambitions uh, for children and that a core uh, ambition is to end childhood poverty. We certainly wish him luck with that. Susanna, I have to leave it there. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much.
much. Uh, good morning to you. Bye bye. That is uh, Suzanne Rogers of Social Justice at Ireland. Last week it was announced that land at the scenic Connor Pass in the west of Kerry has been put up for sale with a guide price of €10 million. Euro. The owner of the pass, Mike Nolan uh, Noonan, said it was his wish to keep all the lands together and he suggested it would be nice if the government purchased it. That suggestion is echoed by Tony Lowe's, our friends of the Irish environment and Tony joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Tony. Good morning, Patricia. And, and you're welcome. What would be your ideal proposal? Turn this into some kind of a national park? Would that be your thinking on it? I think it could make the core of a national park. It's not actually very big when you compare it to, say, the Wicklow Park, and these are 200-hectare parks. And we're talking about uh, 50, perhaps, here. So that it's not as, 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 as large as it could be, but it kind of begs for being expanded. I don't know if you know the area, but from the end of that peninsula, the Brandon Mountain, back to Dingle, is all enchanted countryside, as well as being great nature conservation value. So I think if, if the state was able to purchase it, the future would be really very, very positive, both for, for the natural environment itself and, and, to be honest, for tourism. The 10 million guide price, is, is, that, a, is that a fair price for that? For that <laughs> land? I have no idea how much that land like that costs. Well, that comes down to 7,000 an acre, which is way out of line for mountain land in West Cork. With is no road is it? No. OK. Oh, yeah. OK. But I mean, I mean, fair play, the man has put together a number of properties, so he's obviously, um, you know, deserving of, of some reward. But that is, you know, that is a, a lot of money from that point of view. But I noticed this morning in the Irish Times it reported that uh, Biden's visit to Ireland cost us Thirty-one million. I spotted the same article actually, and I thought the same thing. I said, if that was thirty-one million, we'd buy three corner passes <laughs> out yeah. of the mo- out yeah. of the money that <laughs> Joe Biden's visit um, uh, cost. Talk to me um, just briefly, Tony, about national parks and why national parks are important. Well, I think the main thing about uh, the national park we're looking at here is that if it went into private hands, it could be closed off to the public. There is no public uh, access to our mountains and to our uh, uplands. So so keeping them open so that people can actually visit them is perhaps the most important thing of all. We know now how much people value nature. We've learned that lesson, and we, we want as many areas as possible to them. And the best way to ensure that, of course, is to own them. But we'd also be able then to, to, to do a bit of rewilding, to allow the, uh, the natural habitat to come back, the scrub, and eventually the forest. And this would act as a sink and absorb our greenhouse gases. And the more greenhouse gases we absorb, the better off we are and the less we'll have to cut down in other areas. So there's compelling reasons for buying it economically <laughs> in terms yeah. of climate, you know. And, and is, then, is, there, we, is there a lot of work and a lot of money involved in rewilding it? There's a lot of money involved in fencing, I think, is your, your, your major problem. From then on, it really, as uh, Owen Dalton has shown down here, near where we are on the end of the Barra Peninsula, with just, uh, <clears throat> I think it's 14 years since he got a grant and put a fence up, and mm-hmm. his place is rewilded into an absolute magic jungle, we would look at as. Uh, it, it, it could be done. All you have to do is take off the grazing animal. So you, yeah, and then you let na- you let nature do its thing. It, 
because otherwise, anytime anything comes up, there's either a sheep, a deer, or a goat that's going to get that little green bud, and it'll never survive. You really have to take the grazing off to let nature come back. Now, in the end, you may need some, and there's a balance to be seen. But basically, really, to give it a chance to grow back, you want to, you want to really, uh, you know, lighten up on the pressures. Any photographs I see of the Connor Pass, there seems to be a lot of sheep. So you would, rem- <laughs> you would remove the sheep? Yes, yes, you would. Well, there might be a certain, uh, you know, use, use for grazing animals at certain points. Uh, but on the whole, I know I noticed that there's a website for this sale and there's a, there's a picture of all these sheep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's not just that. Uh, one of the things that is really worrying about our coast now is, uh, is algae blooms. I, I swim every day down here. And the water is green. And the water is green because too many nutrients have gone into it. And these nutrients are coming, obviously, from fertilizers, but they're also coming from sheep feces. Because they go in there and they work just like a fertilizer. And they make the algae grow and grow and grow. The bacteria come in, eat the algae. And in that process, the oxygen is gone. And the water becomes a dead zone. Crabs can't live in it. No animals can live in these dead zones. And there are more and more of them along our coast. You know, it breaks my heart to see when I go down to swim to see green water. It really is unnecessary if we took the right preventative measures. And buying a place like the Connor Pass would be a good example. I saw that the local independent, uh, Kerry TD, uh, Michael Heedy Ray, uh, he says if the government have 10 million to spend on the Connor Pass. He suggests uh, putting it into social housing in uh, Kerry. We do have a housing crisis, as everybody knows at the moment. So you can see the argument that if the government step up and say, OK, let's spend the 10 million, you're going to people saying, why don't you build houses with it? Absolutely. It's a very compelling argument. Uh, and it's very difficult to argue against that. We need housing desperately. We need it for our own people. And we need it for refugees. And, and this is going to become the biggest issue that we face as climate change moves in on Ireland is refugees and displacement of people. We need to put money into that. We need to step up to the plate. But as you and I have just pointed out, hey, wait a minute, let's look at it from the perspective of giving $31 million to have Biden's visit. Yeah. It all depends yeah. on the way you look at it. You know, yeah, it all and, on- you know, I only already spoke earlier about, you know, the... the the government, they, they are awash with money at the moment. We, we know going into the next budget, it's, it's billions uh, they're talking about. So I suppose when you look at the money that's coming in and they are talking about trying to put some of the money into one-off, one-off projects. I mean, buying the Connor Pass would be a one-off project in that it wouldn't be 10 million every year. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, we're, we had five national parks in the last 20 years of the last century, including the Wicklow National Park opened by Charles Hoy, five of them in the last 20 years. And we haven't had one since the year 2000. So, mm. so you know, we we're long overdue. Yeah, we're long, we're long overdue. Yeah. And we're yeah, constantly we're talking about climate change. We're constantly re- rewilding has become uh, the new buzzword. And here would be uh, an opportunity. And I'm assuming, Tony, because I heard the American owner, uh, Mike Noonan, say, you know, his wish was to keep all the lands together. Would, would that be the worst possible scenario to see the land sold off and, and divided into individual parcels of land? Or sold off to, to somebody else who fences it off and decides that he doesn't want people coming up and bothering his little kingdom in the west of Ireland. We, we've seen this happen on beaches in Mayo. We've seen it happen in different places in the country. And because of our legislative framework 
and because of problems of, of, of liability for accidents when they occur on farmlands, mm-hmm. these kinds of things have, have bedeviled our, our access to, the, to, to nature. So the only really secure way to ensure that you and I have a place to go when we want to get away to have national parks. And have it in state ownership. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll wait and see what the government are going to do on this one. In the meantime, Tony, thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thank you, Patricia. Good morning Bye. to you, Tony Lowe's Friends of the Irish Environment. Texture says, Patricia, what can one do with the Connor Pass? It's all rock put a preservation order on it. Plenty of things to do with that 10 million if the government had it. They could spend it on schools, they could spend it on health, etc. I read with great interest President Michael D. Higgins' article in yesterday's Irish Independent. He was speaking about the demise of the Land Commission and he described it as a tragedy. We have investors and speculators buying up land, many who never farm it or even step foot on it. They then let it for 7 to 15 years and they do not pay one single cent in tax, while genuine farmers don't get a look in. What a crazy system we have. It's time our government pulled the plug on those tax breaks and reinstate the Land Commission and reinstate it for the fair distribution of uh, land. How would other people feel about the government bringing back the Land Commission? Your thoughts welcome to 0818 103 103. But would you be agreeing with that, Tony Lowe's that if it is 10 million and if the owner, even though Tony says that's overpriced, but if the owner is uh, adamant that that's what the guide price uh, is rather than let it go out of public ownership, um, do you think the government should come up with the 10 million or would you be with Michael Healy Ray saying, look, if the government have 10 million, better ways to spend it, let's build houses in the area instead. Some of your thoughts and comments uh, coming in a voice note in from a listener when we were discussing the Connor Pass in Kerry and how it has gone up for sale with a guide price of 10 million euro. This is a good question from this listener. Hi Trisha, uh, one little question. Why does somebody own the Connor Pass? I have a bit of a problem with that tomorrow yeah and actually when I heard thank you for that when I heard that the Connor Pass was up for sale that was I was thinking as well I I didn't even realise that the Connor Pass was in a private ownership because the Connor Pass I mean it's known the world over it's one of Ireland's most panoramic driving uh, routes 1,400 acres of land and it seemingly it's been owned by an American for decades this uh, Mike Noonan and I don't know maybe there's somebody out there that can tell me how how did he end up in with ownership of the Connor Pass? I I certainly don't don't know the reason, but it's his, and he now wants to sell it, and he wants ten million. It's working out at roughly seven thousand euro an acre, and according to Tony Lowe's of the um, uh, the Irish Environmental Group, friends of the Irish Environment, that's overpriced. So let's wait and see if anybody knows the answer. Why why did that American? How did that American? How did it come into the ownership of that American for decades, uh, the Connor Pass? Maybe somebody out there knows the answer. Uh, Mara says, I would be 100% in agreement with the listener who suggested bring back the Land Commission. It was the greatest mistake uh, to ever get rid of it. And I had to do a quick Google search as to when. I think the Land Commission ended in the late 1990s. 
it was I mean it was initially created by the British Crown back in 1846 and it was to inquire into the occupation of the land in Ireland and the office was a commission that was based in Dublin Castle the records uh, were there and it took on the role of rent fixing back in the 1800s and for a century it was a body responsible for redistributing farmland in most of Ireland it was formally abolished this is according to Wikipedia in 1999 so there are some people saying bring it back away 818-103-103. Can we help our one of our listeners? We always like to help out uh, when somebody finds a bit of a problem in the house. Kate has been on to us looking for a remedy, please, to get rid of fruit flies in the house. She said she's cleaned the place. place. Somebody told her to use vinegar, which said they keep reappearing. Anybody know how to get rid of uh, fruit flies? I know usually whenever I get fruit, fruit flies, it's normally to do with fruit in a fruit bowl. I like to fruit. Um, we eat a lot of fruit in our house and usually if it's on the kitchen table, you know, the bowl of fruit and usually there's some, it'll attract ones that should have been eaten a few days ago and that usually is the reason. And when you get rid of that, they disappear. But obviously this isn't, that isn't the issue for uh, Kate. So fruit flies, how do you get rid of fruit flies? The vinegar option doesn't appear to be working for Kate if anybody has a suggestion please 0818 103 103 we've been discussing the budget and possibilities of what will be in the budget and this is in particular has been kicked off by Leo Varadkar who's determined to end child poverty and he is making sure that that's going to be reflected in their ambitions for children in the next budget so he's come out with a variety of different different schemes that are on the table and are being discussed by the coalition budget, by the coalition parties but the the headline one I suppose is the possibility of a 10 euro a month rise in the core rate of payment to child benefit and it would cost the exchequer, it would be expensive, 150 million uh, a year. Uh, Martin says, morning Patricia, on the budget it doesn't matter how much the government decides to give because guess what, they'll take it off us in other ways, be it petrol, diesel, food hikes, car tax hikes, car insurance, etc, etc, etc. What's the point of getting all excited about the October budget? It's only going to be a joke again, like it always is. And then Martin wants to point out that petrol in Formoy is at 169.9. What will it be when the government puts it up? It's in September, isn't it? The excise is more. The excise duty is going back on it. It's a pure disgrace, uh, Patricia. They give us pay rises and then take the money away from us uh, in other ways. The budget will be the same as all of the other ones on previous years. And then when Martin sent that text, he very quickly sent back another text because he was obviously out and about. And he said he's just spotted that petrol has gone up in one of the garages in Formoy to 172.9. I've been noticing, I, I pass the garage every day on the way to work and I always just glance up and keep an eye on it. And for a long period of time, it was kind of stagnating. It was at the, the same price. But you can see petrol and diesel is starting to go back up again. And we are going to get a big jump in September when they put back on more of the excise uh, duties. It'll be back up at that two euro mark. If it keeps rising the way it's rising, it'll hit the two euro mark before we know it. And of course, it was when it was just went over the two euro mark that the government intervened and reduced some of the excise duty. And now they're putting it back on. I think they're doing it at the wrong time. 0818 103 103. Hi, Patricia. What is in this budget for working people? They are taxed out of it. Look at the price of petrol and diesel. Look at the price of housing, rent, groceries. You're like electricity bill, your home heating oil, toil, toll charges all have gone up and the government come up with increasing child benefit to keep other 
people's children out of poverty, having working people enough to pay for. While many of those working people will have families as well. You've got to remember that. Paddy says, morning, Patricia. The simple economics on having children in Ireland is twofold. Now, this is in response to the listener who doesn't have, isn't, sadly, isn't able to have any children and was taking umbrage to the fact of this person works and why should this person work to pay for other people's children when they don't have children themselves? So Paddy wants to explain the simple economics of having children. It's twofold. Uh, one, you're investing in this country by ensuring its continuity. Two, the costs to rear a child in Ireland is, on average, €100,000 for a male and €110,000 for a female. Which beggars the question, why is raising a girl more expensive than raising a boy? Has anybody looked into that? Anyway, back to Paddy. Uh, That's up to the age of 18. So the person saying that they have no children to look after, they're actually saving because they don't have those costs. One last point. If you buy a house in Ireland, it's not just the sticker price. It's the sale price plus 60% to service your mortgage. All figures coming from uh, the CSO uh, office. Uh, Thank you for that, Paddy. And just on the issue of children, when you hear, you know, people who don't have children for whatever reason, you know, sadly, some people can't have children. Other people opt to not uh, to have uh, children. And then when they give out for paying for somebody else's uh, children, be it the schooling and, you know, child benefit and all of that. You have to remember, Paddy is right, you know, by investing in our children, we are ensuring the continuity. And remember, the children of today, they grow up to hopefully stay in this country and become the taxpayers of the future and then for somebody who doesn't have any children when you go into old age and you're starting to draw down pensions it's those children and their tax that will be paying for your pension etc. So that's how the continuity of the country uh, continues but I think it was put slightly better by Paddy. Thank you for that Paddy. Hi Patricia if the government have all this surplus money that they're talking about where is the Metro North to Dublin Airport? When is that project going to start? It's about the only main airport in Europe that has no train connection to the city centre and you can often see tourists if you're uh, you're arriving in Dublin airport you'll often see tourists outside standing looking at the bus and trying to work out how they get into the city centre and trying to work out is it, uh, what about a taxi how much is that going to cost and can't believe that we don't have a train yeah we probably are one of the only and that is a main uh, airport in this country not to have a rail link into the city listen there's been talks about Metro North the last time I looked into it we were looking at the cost of how much it cost so far with all of the different reports that they had done on it run into millions and not a piece of track has been laid I haven't for a while seen any talk of the Metro North does Dublin need it yeah 100% 0818 103 103 listening to what Leo is saying could be contained in the next budget has led somebody to say Leo the leak the budget won't help us and we won't need a budget guess why because we'll know it all but isn't that what every politician does between particularly when they come back from their summer recess in what is it the middle of September from then into when the budget gets announced in October there'll be loads spoken about what's possibly in the budget a lot of it they do a little bit of kite flying they'll you know they'll leak something or they'll mention something they'll see how that goes down with the general general public and then if it's a good idea or a bad idea if they're getting very bad response on it it'll suddenly get pulled back or I find what often happens is they'll talk about an increase in something and then on the day of the budget the increase won't be as high and everyone almost gives a sigh of relief it's not as bad as what we thought and I often want to know I've never been able to prove it but I've often wondered is it deliberately leaked out at a higher rate so when they come in at a lower rate people are just going to accept it I've always had a thought pattern on that Mary says Patricia what I would like 
to see happen in the budget is some tax relief on mortgage repayments, especially for struggling young couples who can't contemplate even starting a family. Why? Due to the high cost of high prices and hence high mortgage repayments. Also, I think the government should lower the threshold on inheritance tax on the family home, especially where there's only one child to inherit and lower the tax rate for payment of that tax from. That is a Mary saying to Leo, while you're putting the government together, look at taxes, please. And then there was a question in, and I tried to get the answer during the news there at 11. Could you please find out for me, please? A couple getting an old age pension, the husband paid stamps while working and the wife is an adult dependent. How much can you have in a joint bank account before it will affect their social welfare payments? Well, I am assuming from that text, text if the husband has paid stamps, he had enough contributions, which means he is after getting a contributory state pension and a contributory state pension isn't means tested in any way. So they're not going to look at how much is in the bank, etc. Now, it's different if it's a non-contributory pension. That's a means-tested uh, payment where all, you know, cash income, you know, that they they may be, um, you know, they maybe have a part-time job that would be taken into it. Uh, capital outside of not the value of the house, but any savings that they, they have, that would be taken into it. But that's for, an, for a non-contributory pension. But if it's a, a contributory pension, and I take it from the thrust of that text, it is then how much is in the bank doesn't come into it. But what I always say to people is get on to your citizens' information. They are a fantastic organisation and they certainly will be able to sort you out and tell you uh, exactly what is and isn't available, how much you're entitled to, how much you're not entitled to. And they can do a lot of it over the phone like you know you can call into your citizens information they also there's loads of information online if you have access online citizensinformation.ie but you can phone them on 0818 and they're open 9am to 8pm Monday to Friday and they are a, an absolute mine of information 0818 103 103 text WhatsApp 0862 103 103 C103 Jobs person is wanted for cooking in a Bandon canteen. Now, it's no weekend work and no bank holiday work. You email your CV, please, to kccateringcork at hotmail.com. Butterman Pharmacy, they've got a vacancy for a full-time counter assistant. Now, experience desirable, although it's not essential. CVs to butterfandpharmacy at gmail.com. Person wanted for a furniture and carpet store that's in Bantry. Experience preferred. Again, not essential. Call TIG 086 837 And a water filter engineer. This is wonderful work in the West Cork area. 087-8296712. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. cmig.ie. The representative body for private hospitals has says it cannot continue to support the public healthcare system on an ad hoc basis. Jim Daly is CEO of the Private Hospitals Association and he joins me to outline why he feels we need a more strategic uh, partnership between the uh, two. Good morning to you, Jim. Good morning, Patricia. I suppose, can you start by explaining what is happening at the moment with what you describe as a kind of a haphazard relationship between the private hospitals and the HSE? 
Yeah, so what you have at the moment is you have a number of what we refer to as local arrangements that work quite well. And that would be where nearby hospitals like, say, CUH and Cork would deal with the bonds in Cork. They would have a good, you know, working relationship and they would work very closely together. But again, it's very much, you know, kind of hand to mouth. Basically, we might need a few beds next week and the week after we're looking, you know, we, we don't know how we'll be to fix that week. And then what happens more on a national scale is when there is a big drama about the amount of people waiting on trolleys and the numbers exceed a certain number. There's panic within the, the political system and the media and, and the HC are under pressure and they reach to the private system looking for, you know, can we get another 100 beds next week and can we get whatever? And we don't have that kind of capacity. We are very, very busy ourselves um, and we have to prioritise um, people with private health insurance. They're our first priority. So what we're kind of saying to the state is we're quite happy to help because the state does not have the wherewithal to address the waiting list that are there at this moment. They don't have the wherewithal to scale up the level of capacity that is required in the short term. And effectively, what the state is doing from any independent observer's point of view is running to, to not even stand still. The waiting lists are getting longer and the demand is increasing and they're not able to just you know keep up. So we're quite happy to scale up and uh, we can do it much more efficiently, much more quickly. We can uh, add on wards, we'll take in uh, modular theatres, we will recruit additional consultants in the private sector very, very quickly, and we're quite happy to do that for the state. But it has to give us a line of sight of guaranteed work for a number of years. In other words, if it says, look, to make it worth, yeah, to make it worth your while. Well, to make it, I mean, it isn't even worth your while. Well, of course, worth your while, but I mean, yeah, you can't recruit a consultant for, you know, six beds that might be filled tomorrow or mightn't be filled. Whereas if yeah. they told us, look, we're going to take those six beds every day, we can recruit an, an, an additional nurse or whatever. And the same with, you know, if they said, look, we're going to require 500 hips to be done every year for the next however long. You know, can one of your hospitals do that? We're quite happy to. I'll speak to my hospitals and go back and say, look, yeah, we can do 500 um, hips for you, or we can do 1,000 hips, or we can do 1,500. The same with knees, the same with cataracts, the same with whatever speciality is required. But basically, the state has always run on an annual system, which is kind of January to December, and it's budgeted accordingly, and the political system mirrors that. And there isn't, I suppose, the same incentive for the state to take a more medium term. We're not looking for a 20-year guarantee of work or anything like this but a minimum of three years tell us what you require over a three-year period and we'd be quite happy to as i say scale up we'll do it really quickly i mean the bonds are building a brand new hospital one of my members uh, down in limerick and they turned the sod there last february the teacher turned the sod there and that the doors will be open in a fully functional 200 plus bed hospital will be open next uh, the first week of january next year it'll open on new year's day God, and education's inside it. could you get them to go up and build a children's hospital in dublin <laughs> 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 okay. So, so at the moment we're talking about the treatments that that are provided. It, it, this is done under the National Treatment Purchase Fund, isn't it? But, but I, what you're saying is you never know from one year to the next how many treatments will be done under that scheme. Yeah, I mean, you, you see a headline there every once a year. The, the minister has made an allocation to DPF for forty million euro year and 50 million this year and so it's on a yearly basis and by the time the HSE or the NTPF get to work that through and they have their own challenges with administering that as well the NTPF and you know it, it's it's just a cumbersome it does work and there are a lot of patients treated through it but we could be much smarter I mean I, I would always maintain um, Patricia that we should be looking at the health system as a single health system not at this ridiculous the private and the public and the you know this disjointed approach to healthcare at the end of the day it should be about the patient and 
it should be patient-centered and the patient really doesn't mind what's the governance structure or what's the ownership model behind any hospital as long as there's a doctor and a nurse who are clinically trained and the, the highest quality of care available to them to make them well again. And it's all the same money. It's, it's swirling around through whether people mm. are paying it into the insurance company. That's form of, a form of taxation, if you like, anyway. And additional taxation or if people, you know, if it's coming through the NTPF, it's, it's all the same money that's paying for healthcare. And we need to look at it as a kind of a, a single holistic and let the public and the private work very well together. No more than Cork County Council does with employing private contractors to help it do its roads and help it do its, you know, whatever it does yeah, there yeah. on the managed services. It's it's not an atma. A lot of, I've often made this point, a lot of the health services private anyway. Uh, our GPs are one of the most highly regarded and valued aspects of healthcare delivery. They're private operators. So are um, pharmacies, you know, but they must all, we must all work together in a unified health system and ignore this nonsense, which to be honest has mostly come from um, politicians. This ideological thing about healthcare should never be privatised. It should never be, you know, in the hands of private. It should always be public, you know, fair enough if we want to live in some sort of a, a utopia, but a realistic um, necessity must dawn on us that we are all in this together and the, COVID showed that. And yeah, showed how well I, I, and I was just going to bring up COVID. I mean, there was significant cooperation during the COVID pandemic between the private hospitals and the HSE. So th- th- there's, there was a model there that worked. It's, it, it, well, it looked on the outside that it worked extremely well. It did. And I mean, again, I make the point like the private hospitals did that on a strict cost recovery basis. They refused you know, to make any profits. It was just to don't, just on a cost recovery basis only. And it worked really, really well. And I think that is the model that we need to, you know, um, reinvent, not reinvent, sorry, because it's there already, but replicate, to replicate that model. Um, some aspects of it aren't necessary. And it was done in a very, you know, heightened, tense, rushed, you know, panicked kind of, you know, version. At the start, so, yeah. Yeah, at the start, I mean, it was done under enormous duress and, and great credit to everybody who stood up to the metal or to the to the um, to the plate there on that. But no, I think you're right that there is the bones of that that have shown us what we can do working together, and I think that's what we need. And if the minister and the government and and the private sector just kind of and the HSC and you know all the parties sit down together and tease this out, but we do need to kind of take a three-year term approach, which isn't typically what politicians are about, or five-year approaches because the the electoral cycle, I suppose sometimes kind of doesn't incentivize that more longer term thinking and it's the same with budgeting budgeting is given every year the hse is told how much it has to spend on healthcare um but they're going to have to move beyond that with it if they want to yeah, do something it's a, it's a real sector. it's a real pity because uh, people are suffering uh, because of it and you know and as you mentioned waiting lists are, are growing almost on on a daily basis if not on an hourly basis and they're growing for both outpatient and inpatient uh, treatment we also on the other side of the coin are hearing you know that we've never seen such record amount of money coming into the exchequer be it from corporation tax um, personal taxation v- VAT so there is money there that, that could be used mm-hmm. and some of that money could be used now spend it now to reduce these hospital waiting lists Absolutely. I mean, we're probably in a, in a position for the first time ever in the history of the state, Patricia, where money is not the problem. Um, we were always talking about, you know, budget constraints and all of that. But I mean, there is so much money there and that's not to suggest it should be thrown away or frittered away or anything like that. There's still, But we have to look beyond and see what's the real challenge now in healthcare and that is capacity. You know, we have a limited number of beds. We have a limited number of theatres. We have a limited number. So the demand is increasing. The population is growing. We're getting older. There's more and more people living longer. So, you know, it, it's not rocket science to say that capacity is the constraint that's there and is what's preventing. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. These waiting lists from being addressed in a substantial way. You can kind of tinker around with them a little bit. And the only way we can build up capacity in the state, we know it's, it's a torturous because of the public procurement laws and because of the various challenges that happen in the public sector. The private sector can do it so much more efficiently. I mean, literally, if we were given the go-ahead in the morning in any one of my private hospitals, we'll have a ward and an operating theatre uh, opened up and running within six months. Um, you know, a couple of new wards and a couple of new theatres would be no difficulty at all start to finish. They would bring in a modular theatre and, and so on and so forth. So we have the capacity to do it. We have the ability to do it. But like the private hospitals, like anybody else they have to be sustainable they have investors or funders or people who are you know paying the, the piper and they need to kind of a, some sort of security from the state to say that look over the next three years yeah we'll guarantee so much work well then in that case we will scale up and we will build on and we will provide yeah, a service and, and, and there and, are yeah. means of pricing you know, that and, accordingly and properly yeah and the thing is looking at the waiting lists you know it's not like that they're going to guarantee work for the next three years and then the work dries up because we know yeah, that these people yeah. are, are, are on the waiting list but but you mentioned that private hospitals you're very busy at the moment I, 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 I'm assuming some of this is catch up is it from the pandemic yeah, it is. It's really only kind of, I suppose, since May, we started to see the real pickup post the pandemic, that there was whatever kind of delays had to work through the system and maybe delayed diagnoses. And uh, I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a clinical person. I don't run a hospital per se, but um, from listening to my members talking, it just seems to be in the last few months, kind of April, May, June, July, it's got really, really busy. So uh, that is kind of certainly post-COVID. Um, what has caused that lag? I don't know exactly the detail of that, but it's only now it's starting yeah. to really really impact okay all right uh, jim thank you for that and we and and are you reaching out to the government to with your suggestion who are you reaching yeah, out to yeah we, yeah, we have. We have had a good engagement with the Department of Health, with the Minister, with the Taoiseach and indeed with the HSE as well. Um, you know, and I think they I think they accept and understand, but there are challenges to try and get it over the line. And sometimes you kind of have to raise a bit of awareness around this because the private hospitals will continue to be very busy. They're not really looking or begging for this work at all. A lot of my members would say, I spend way too much time trying to get this over the line, but I genuinely would like to see the, the healthcare sector as, as a whole 
um, be improved in Ireland because ultimately it is about patients and should always be. And we should drop a lot of the nonsense and, and work together. Um, but there are challenges to get that, that okay. over the line. OK, and I think a lot of people will agree it is all about patients. Jim, we leave it there. Thank you for that. And uh, okay, thanks, thanks for joining Patricia. us. Uh, good morning to you. That is Jim Daly, who is CEO of the Private Hospitals uh, Association. And I suppose here's a, a point, you know, summing up people on waiting lists. Mikey was on to us. Uh, he's under uh, the care of one of the city hospitals at the moment uh, for cancer uh, treatment. And he's just been told he's going to have to wait a month to see his consultant to discuss the next stage of his uh, treatment. He's obviously, he's not a private patient, he's a public patient. He said it's so wrong to ask anybody to wait when you're in a situation like that, when you get a cancer uh, diagnosis. And I'm really surprised at that because that was the one thing we often hear when we talk uh, to people who've gone through that cancer journey. Uh, People will say, you know, getting the diagnosis and once you get into the system, whether you're private or public, it's a really, really good uh, system. So I'm really surprised uh, to hear that you have a weight and and you know anyone who gets a cancer diagnosis will know outside of the, all of the, the physical treatment that you need it's the whole psychological side of it and what goes through your mind and you just want to get in there and get it sorted and get to see the doctor and know that you're on the right treatment and you certainly don't want anything that you feel is going to be delaying your treatment so I really am surprised to, uh, to hear that uh, Mikey we wish you well in your treatment uh, journey and uh, let, keep in contact with us let us know how you're getting on Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Can you talk to me? Cork today on C103. Now, only yesterday on the programme, we spoke about the importance of kindness uh, in our lives. That was with our weekly chat with psychotherapist uh, Joe Heffernan. And today we are continuing on the theme because my next guest, Wendy Moore, has just published a book called Kindness. And I'm delighted to say uh, Wendy joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Wendy. Good morning, Patricia. You're very welcome uh, to the programme. And your book, it arrived safe and sound yesterday. It's absolutely uh, delightful. I was curled up in the couch at home uh, yesterday going through it. It really is lovely. Now, it's a book of paintings and your poetry. Talk to me about how this book came about. So, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, A few years ago, I, I love quotes. So I... I read a quote and it's uh, it was by Leonardo da Vinci and it goes like this. A painting is poetry that is seen rather than felt and poetry is painting that is felt rather than seen. I like to do both. I like to paint and I like to write poetry. So the idea kind of stayed with me and then I thought, oh, that would be just such a lovely idea for a book because it just brings two art forms together. Um, and very soft and very gentle. Um, so the journey begun and hence you've, you've 46. Pro- you've produced a beautiful book. And which came first, the painting or the poem or the poem and then the painting? Um, so I think the painting begins both both finished together. Okay. So it starts with the painting first. Um, and then once the name of the painting is chosen, that can be either mixed with the idea of a poem for the painting or or vice versa. Um, so they both finish together. And it's kind of like a little journey because you're journeying through your artwork and you're journeying through the words for your artwork, the poem. Um, but I hope both go together really well. They do. Because they, you've, you've, you've nailed it. Yeah, you, you really have. It's, it's hard oh, to you. imagine a, a book whereby the painting 
reflects the poem or the poem reflects the painting. And as I say, I was reading through your poems yesterday and literally every single painting, I, get, I got your mess. I got what was in the poem or, or in the poem, I got what was in the painting. It, describe to people your style of painting. Oh, my style. I love colour. My style, I, I can I see that be, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> my style would be probably very textured. So I like to layer. I, I work a lot with oils and I like to layer color on color because it just gives that little shadow and it creates a movement. Um, on a particular style, I vary. I, I have, oh, there's so many, as you've seen in the book. Don't know have I got one particular style, but I vary many, many styles together um, to create my own little creations. Um, but I think it, for each painting, it is always about color, always, and, always. And do you sell your paintings? I I started this book a couple of years ago. Now I have done commissions and all that, but. The paintings became very sacred. (laughs) I couldn't sell them because, you know, just to finish out the book as well, they needed to be photographed. And I'm talking of the paintings, 44 out of the 46 paintings in the book are going up in the black market tomorrow. So for our book launch on Friday. Um, So they'll be exhibited. So not only will you see the paintings in the book, but you'll see the paintings as they are um, displayed all over the black market. So, exhibited, yeah. for, exhibited for sale. I, <laughs> Patricia, <laughs> you're asking me all. <laughs> I couldn't even, yeah. you know what? It's been such a whirlwind getting this book out. Yeah. Oh my goodness, getting the kindness book out. I couldn't even imagine how how much I could sell yeah. them for. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that hasn't even come to my mind yet. It'd it's be like, like selling oh. one of your children. I don't think I can part with it. Now, oh, no, no. I mean, I can. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. You will. I okay. Okay. Because they're beautiful. Because, but yeah, yeah they're beautiful. And, and I do think people will fall in love with these paintings and, and will love the idea of bringing one home. So so I certainly I would be advising oh, people to, 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 to go along. And, and, and you also include, which I loved, um, famous uh, quotes. Are they are they something you've always collected? You, you, it strikes me you've been collecting these quotes. I have always loved quotes, always. I think quotes are just such a lovely way to, you know, make little words bring such meaning. A little bit like poetry, but but a condensed version. Um, so each painting, I actually. When So when the poem and the painting are done, then it's that kind of journey to find, right, what would be the quote that would best suit this painting? And that's with bringing in the quotes. It's just bringing another another dimension to the two art forms and, you know, making us think. And also all of the po- all of the quotes are inspirational as well. And so, you know helping you along the day and there's another little thing that I love to do with quotes as well so even with the book with my kids it's like well you know open the page open a page and 
that's your little quote for the day. Mm. So it's just yeah, that's nice. That's because when I was going through it, I was I, I I love quotes as well, and I was delighted. Uh, I was on page uh, seventy three. I came across one of my favourite. It's it's Albert Einstein's um, uh, quote, and uh, and you uh, and you put it under the poem fairies. And it's uh, if you want your children to be intelligent, read them fairy tales. If you want them to be more intelligent read them more fairy tales. And that was a famous quote from Albert Einstein, which I think is because I'm, I'm, so <laughs> I'm a huge advocate of reading to children and instilling in children that love of uh, books. It's, 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 and then at the end of the book, which I wasn't expecting, you leave spaces mm-hmm. and blank pages. Explain, explain your thought pattern on that. Creative Pages. So yeah. Creative Pages came along. Well, well, firstly, the book is called Kindness and the book can't be all about me if it's kindness. You know, there, there has to be a kindness aspect in it. And I was thinking, well, how could I do this? And last year I, I, I did some art classes and the art classes were meditation, uh, meditate to create. But in it, all the students created their own piece of artwork, but they also created their own poem to go with it. So that was kind of a concept that was proven. And I just thought, well, wouldn't it be lovely? Because I think to be an artist, you have to encourage. I think that's that's the biggest part of being an artist is not just doing your work, but encouraging other people to be creative because the benefits are just so huge. And the creative pages at the end of the book, it follows the same theme of the book, but it allows you, the reader, to create your own little works of art and then write in your own little quote. And then afterwards, it's just, well, while you were creating that art, how did it make you feel? And you just simply write down the words and create a poem because poetry is really just emotions. You know, it's it's emotions that are condensed into words. And and I think there's there's a little as there's a little logo that we go on as well with with the kindness book and it's spread kindness and create mm. and just adding to that both will make you feel great. Yeah, yeah. And, think, and it's a known fact, you know, that, you know, through painting and, and writing, it, it's, it's a great healing therapy. Oh, absolutely. And and I think it's something that we all need. And I know lots of people will say, oh, well, I can't, I can't. But, you know, you can, you can. There is nothing in this world that you can't do. And creating your own little piece of art, that will just take you to such a lovely, safe, quiet space within your own mind. And so I think that's that was the that was the thinking behind the creative pages is that number one, the book shares and it allows the book to become something personal to you, not just not just kindness by Wendy Moore. It's kindness and your your art is in it as well as yeah. mine. I'm just guiding you along. And nobody has to see it if you don't want to share it with anybody, but it will just be there for oh, you absolutely. as well. And, and ideally, if you create masterpieces, you can share them. So you're going to be sharing your masterpieces and this wonderful book at a special launch, the, the Black Market in Cork. It's uh, Friday, isn't it? This Friday. 
tomorrow. Uh, sorry, excuse me, Friday. Yeah. Yeah. All day, all messed up for days. Oh, yes, Friday. Thank goodness, not tomorrow. Um, yes, yeah, so it's 6 to 8.30. Um, we're going to have, so we'll be reciting some poetry, book signings. We have live music by Stephen O'Moore my brother who is probably the best guitarist in Cork Um, and yeah it should be lots of fun it should be lots it should be and and visually it'll be beautiful okay and And people are are welcome to come along will will you do a quick poem for us out of the book certainly would you like to pick one will you do the fairies one I yeah, because I, I just I particularly I, I like it and I love the painting that goes with it and that gorgeous Albert Einstein quote. Oh, that's so lovely. One second there now. I just one moment. Oopsie, Daisy. Trying to find um, page 74. Nearly there now. Sorry, guys. <laughs> You're excuse okay. me. I, I, in fairness, I should, have, <laughs> I should have pre-warned you. I was going to ask you to do this. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. Hey, come here. I'm delighted. Thank you so much. Fairies. Oh, what little mischievous creatures you are. Vividly coloured, all sparkly you seem. Living happily among nature, hiding in flowers and helping them blow. The forts you live in can be found in a circle mounts on nature's ground. But you know, if you see a fairy, quickly look the other way and carefully walk away. Because fairies must always be left alone, you daren't come near its home. So let the little fairies be to live happily amongst the grass, flowers and trees. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. You should make an audiobook. <laughs> you should make an audio book. You delivered that absolutely beautifully. Listen, we wish you the oh. best of luck. And where is the book available, um, Wendy? The book will be, uh, for now, the book is available on my website, which is wendymoreart.com. There's free shipping with it as well, where after the launch, please go, it'll be in all bookstores nationwide but for now it's um, on, on my their website, website okay. more arts. and if it when it does hit the bookshops it'll stand out because of the colours that's on the on the, oh, on the cover for sure. Listen, oh, thank you well, so thank you, so you much. for joining Your us kindness. We, and uh, we wish you luck with it because we all need more kindness in this world so we well do. done for spreading it in your book and it was a real pleasure to speak with you this morning thank you for that Wendy oh thank you Patricia Go. and thank you Thank you, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Um, that is uh, Wendy Moore and WendyMoreArt.com uh, is uh, Wendy's website. Let me take a look at some of your commentary. Lots of different things coming in on the programme today. Firstly, somebody wants to give a shout out to a social and a dance that's on in Banlasgarthy Hall this coming Friday night. Um, music is by Finbar Dennehy and family and dancing is from 9pm until 12 midnight and all are very welcome. If you fancy a bit of social dancing, Banlasgarthy Hall is your place to be. And thank you to Mary who sent in a lovely text. She was listening to my interview in the last hour with uh, Wendy Moore who was talking about her kindness book. It was just one of those books, you know, when it lands on your desk, you think, oh, that's lovely. We need more kindness in the world. Let's chat with Wendy. And um, Mary he says, really enjoyed the interview with Wendy. She came across as a lovely, calm, relaxing lady and I really enjoyed it. And I loved at the end, and I know I kind of sprung it on her, would she read out one of her poems? I would suggest if Wendy is still listening to us that she should do an audio book. She's got that gorgeous, calm, you're right, it's a calm, relaxing uh, voice and it would make a beautiful 
audiobook that you, you could feel yourself nearly drifting off to sleep uh, listening to Wendy reciting her own uh, poetry. So glad you enjoyed it Mary and the book is called uh, Kindness and we once again wish Wendy well with it. And then another listener was on to say Patricia I'd be really grateful to you could you repeat the name of the cough bottle that you called out last week that you find uh, very good and this is from Carmel and I'm assuming that was my chat with Crossy our entertainment correspondent who joined us on the line from uh, Dublin and I had spotted on his social media page that he had this hacking cough that he just couldn't get rid of and he had every cough bottle and potion and lotion and he'd been to the doctor and it was running for about a month and I saw it the night before and I knew he was on with me the next day and said I must remember to talk to him about his cough so what I suggested to him is something that we here personally in the building find really good and I know some of our listeners when we've recommended it find it really good and we get we we got the suggestion initially from Annalise Drussell our nutritional uh, therapist and it's a product by uh, Dr. Delish Claire. Now she's got a, she is an online uh, company as well but she distributes you'll only get it in health you have to go into health food shops and I don't think she she distributes to every health food shop uh, in Ireland. She's certainly uh, one of the stockists is Annalise in the Health Hub in Times Square and Balancolic. But it is a product called Mucotone M-U-C-O-T-O-N-E Mucotone uh, it doesn't taste good. <laughs> I would say that it doesn't smell good, but it is fantastic. And we just, whenever any of us here in the building gets any kind of a cough, that you know, that kind of a lingering cough that you can't shake off and it, anyone that's got kind of a mucusy kind of a cough, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But as I say, it's just here ourselves in the building. But what we have had, have had listeners say, say it was good as well. So Mucotone by Dr. Deedish Clare, that's the product that I mentioned last uh, week. And then thank you to a slew of of people trying to help out our listener who has the fruit flies issue. Tried the vinegar trick but they keep coming back. Okay, some suggestions in Greta in Crookstown says tell that lady to go into Frank Toomey hardware shop in McCroom. He stocks a powder now I've no name on this powder you'd have to call, call into Frank Toomey it's a powder that you put on the outside of your window Gretchen said since she's put it on the outside of her windows, she's, she's getting no fruit flies into the house and it keeps them out. Well worth a try. But if anybody knows the name of the powder, because I don't know if our listener is anywhere near Frank Toomey's hardware shop in McCroom, but it's a special type of powder to keep out fruit uh, flies. Magella, or sorry, Michelle in Ahada says cedar candles, they'll keep those fruit flies away. They can be hard to get, but they're great to get rid of flies and moths. And they're the cedar candles if you're, you know, if you're outside and you're having maybe a drink in the evening time and there's a lot of little midges around and flies around and you burn one of those in the garden, they're, they're great for that. So I'm assuming it's the same one. And usually at this time of the year, yeah, they're quite common. You'll, you'll see them quite a lot because they're certainly if anybody's barbecuing or whatever, they're great to have in the garden. So cedar uh, candles, try that. And then Kathleen in the city says, Patricia, I also like your other listener. One of my pet hates is fruit flies, but I seem to be getting the better of them at present. How have I solved the problem? All fruit out of sight. Don't leave any fruit out in a bowl and everything washed down with a mild, safe disinfectant. So that's sorting the problem with Kathleen's fruit flies. But she said recently I had a visit from a rat, of all things, at the bottom of my garden. I was amazed to read on the internet that rats thrive on any dropped fruit or berries. It seems if you fruit or berries growing in your garden, you need to clean up around that area regularly. I personally don't have, uh, but uh, I 
why have we not been told about this or is it common knowledge? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, you need to keep gardens clean because any any kind of food source a rat will try and get get into. I know compost heaps can be a problem uh, with rats as well. So hopefully you've solved the problem because there's nothing worse than discovering a rat in your garden. But then you wonder, was the rat always there and you just didn't uh, notice it? I know, I don't know what the stat is here in Ireland, but I know there was a famous uh, statistic if you lived anywhere in London, they reckon no matter where you were in London, no matter where you were living, where you were walking, where you were working, whether you were on public transport, you were never more than six feet away from a rat. You know, rats are there the whole time. So I wonder, was it always there, Kathleen, and you just didn't notice that? I mean, if it's a one-off rat, it, you know, they may, they, they, you know, you haven't got a problem with rats in your garden, which is, is, is the main thing. But I know the very, very fact that you've seen a rat. Horrible, 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 horrible. 0818103103. And thank you to Baz in Bantry. One final one to eliminate fruit flies. Um, Baz says, peel an onion, stud it with cloves and then you leave it somewhere like a work top leave it out and that will certainly sort out the problem of fruit flies so a clove studded with um, an onion studded with cloves kind of like what you do at Christmas with the orange you know you put the cloves in and it gives you that lovely smell I'm assuming it's based on the theory of that but it's the smell of the onions combined with the cloves that I'm assuming fruit flies don't like. Thank you for that one, uh, Baz. On the Connor Pass, uh, Jim says, uh, Patricia, that current, that American owner who's owned it for decades, he bought it from the previous uh, owner, so he did pay money for it. But I think the question is, how does a piece of our gorgeous mountain, how, you know, one of what is certainly known the world over as one of Ireland's most panoramic driving routes, how did, how did it day one, I suppose it goes back in history, how it ended up out of state control, Mary Amalo says, is it not similar to the old head of Kinsale that was sold? There's a private golf club on it now. I heard a politician, Mary Amalo said, speaking last week, who said the owner of the Connor Pass should consider gifting it to the state. But at the end of the day, you have to remember that this owner purchased the land. So, of course, he wants to sell it. If somebody bought a house and no longer wanted to live there, you would sell it. You wouldn't be gifting it to someone. So I think it's very unfair on whatever politician it was, says Mary, to suggest that the owner, the current owner of the Connor Pass should gift it to the state. He wants money for it and he wants 10 million. It's not a it's not small change. 0818 103 103 and then some other issues uh, coming in. Um, hi uh, Patricia, for obvious reasons please don't mention my name but I'm concerned about the alarming amount of COVID cases again and there isn't a word about it. Do people think that COVID has simply gone away and disappeared. And my fear is that people are going around thinking they have a bit of a flu and therefore they're spreading COVID like mad. Members of my family have become very, very sick and we weren't, by the way, out partying or anything like that. So would you please urge all of your listeners to be careful, to take care. COVID is still very much out there. And for people with a compromised immune system, it still is a real, real uh, nightmare. I mentioned uh, COVID. That's, um, thank you for your text. And I'm sorry to hear that some of your family members have become very sick. I did mention COVID last week because there is an increase in hospital cases of COVID. Now, not, not a huge increase, but there was an increase in, you know, the number of people. I think there was, there was um, 10 people, for example, in ICU suffering from uh, COVID. And earlier on, in the, in the, it was at the end of July and the beginning of July, there'd only been three. So they'd seen an 
increase in ICU and they've seen an increase in COVID cases within hospitals. But it's hard to get accurate figures on the amount of COVID that's there at the moment because obviously there's not PCR testing going on. The only testing that's going on is testing that's going on in, ho- in hospitals, which means it's either people who are picking up COVID while in hospital or when, when they come into hospital, they discover that they have COVID. Is COVID out in the community? Of course, Yeah, it is. There was a bit of a summer surge and it's similar to what's happening in the UK. But I think you're right. I think people are going around thinking they just have a bit of a flu because most people now have some kind of immunity built up. So when they do get COVID, they're not as sick as, say, they would have been previously when they didn't when we didn't have vaccines or before they had their first a dose of COVID. So they have some kind of an immunity that people don't seem to get as uh, sick. But it is and will continue to be a worry for people who our listener is saying whose immune systems are compromised. So people need to be careful and you need to be responsible, I suppose, more than anything. If you do get COVID, you can still get the rapid antigen tests and test yourself. And if you do test positive, then you've got to go back to the old guidelines of self-isolating and staying indoors and don't go out shopping and you know, don't be around people because you never know if you go into a supermarket, for example, and you have what you think is a common, a little bit of a common cold or a bit of a flu, and it could be COVID. You don't know who you're mixing with inside in the supermarket or if you're out socialising. And, and we all have to be careful and, and think of other people, particularly those who have uh, compromised immune systems, because remember, COVID can still kill people with a weakened immune system. 0818103103. So yes, it is, there is COVID out there now. It isn't anything like what it was before, but certainly there are uh, cases. And then then uh, Raymond says, uh, morning, uh, Patricia, I wonder if you could highlight this. Along with my brother, we were waiting for the 9.15am bus to Tralee and we were at the bus station in McCroom at 9am, 15 minutes ahead of time for the bus. But we didn't find out until later on from another passenger that that 9.15 bus to Tralee now comes to McCroom at 9.45. So we were 45 minutes early for the bus. This is because Bus Aaron hasn't updated the timetable on the McCroom bus station with the new times which to me is very misleading. I would just like to know if you could get onto Bus Aaron in Cork and ask them to update the timetable please for uh, people. Well at least it was later rather than earlier. There's nothing worse that you would arrive and they've changed the bus time by 15 minutes and you missed the bus. But frustrating if you're standing around waiting for uh, 45 minutes and also frustrating if you had an appointment which could have made you late for your appointment. So Bus air and please, will you do your bit and make sure that your timetables are up to date? 0818 103 103. Our lines are open. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. There's a used clothes collection going on in Gagan Hall uh, tomorrow. Uh, Thursday from 6.30 to 8pm. Also, tickets will be available at the closed collection, €15 each for the community barbecue. Now, community barbecue is later on in the month. It's Sunday the 27th of uh, August. Kaylee sets in the Marion Hall in Ballonhasic on Friday night, uh, dancing from 9.30 with music by Nelly O'Connor. Admission will be €10, and that will include uh, teas. 
and Mallow Adult Learning Centre. They're holding a flag day on this Saturday. All donations will be gratefully received and appreciated for the essential service that they provide in Mallow and the surrounding areas of uh, North uh, Cork. So if you're out and about on the streets of Mallow on Saturday, you should come across them. And Crookstown Annual Vintage Weekend is taking place this weekend, 12th and 13th of August, with Sean Kane in concert on Saturday in Crookstown Hall. That's at half seven. And then on Sunday, it's the official opening by Sean Kane, which will be at 1.30 with vintage vehicles and engines, a dog show, butter making, children's sports, plus lots, lots more. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, Life and Health Insurance, cmig.ie. Yesterday, during a chat on overgrown hedgerows, the problem of ash dieback disease was mentioned, with some people fearful that infected trees could end up falling over on roads and obviously could lead to accidents. Landowners and farmers say they face thousands of euro in bills removing these dying trees, and some public representatives are calling for the state to step in and try to fund the cost, including Galway Councillor Geraldine Donoghue who joins me this afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Geraldine. How are you all in Cork? We're all very well. We're all very well. And is the sun shining in Galway? It is. It's a lovely day, yeah. actually. Now, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's warmer than it was. So it's, it's great. And thanks for having me on, Patricia. Well, listen, listen it, it's our pleasure. I suppose, firstly, can you talk to us about ash dieback disease and how common is it? Yeah, well, I suppose I've highlighted it um, of, as a, I'm an independent councillor, first of all, in Galway County Council and uh, and a farmer, actually. I'm four years elected. So uh, as you can see, go around the country and the county, um, it's a north-south issue at this stage. Um, it's very prevalent. Um, it was first detected, Patricia, back in October 2012, which is 11 years ago, nearly. And um, it resulted from imported infected trees and it's now prevalent across the the, uh, country, north and south, as I said. And it has gotten worse. We can see the trees now. You see your drive around the country, no matter where you are, you'll see they're bare. uh, There's no leaves. There's huge, big branches. Um, There's what that's 11 years of growth now. Pretty, um, you know, they've been growing in some shape or form and they are dying really in front of our eyes. And it's it's quite a, it's a very serious issue because you, do, you don't from the outside, they look fine when you look at a, at a big limb or a big branch. But inside actually is where they are actually crumbling. Yeah, they and that di- is the yeah, big they, concern that they just crumble. They die from the inside out. So you could do. Yeah, you, do. you could look yeah. at a tree that looks OK. It's there mm-hmm. years. It's fine. And then it literally big limbs could suddenly of of branches could just fall off. They just snap off. And I know from, you know, even some trees that have been cut, um, we'll see on the farm and stuff, um, they look fine. They look perfectly healthy and there's very little holding them inside. Um, That's the video my brother sent me the other day, very little holding them. So that's where the big concern is. And look, uh, I feel as a duty as a as a councillor that I raised a motion in Galway County Council. We wrote to the minister uh, for, I suppose, we kind of, I did a, a joint one between local government. You've got um, the minister, Kieran O'Donnell, is there now. And then we've Charlie McConlog, Minister Charlie McConlog. So I was doing a joint effort really to see, could they come together, give money if the local authorities could administer it. But really the answer that came back was no. It's the responsibility under the... Um, 
It's the Section 70 of the Roads Act 1993. It places the responsibility of maintenance of roadside hedges on the owners, occupiers of the adjoining lands. And funnily enough then, Patricia, when you read on further into that, it says the responsibility and maintenance of roadside verges rests with the local authority, which you see, it's a bit of a grey issue, I think, really, because when, when people see, let's say you see Patricia out cutting hedges, you know, are you going to differentiate? Is it a virtuous cutting or is it a hedge? Mm. You know, it, I personally think it's a bit of a grey area. Yeah, and certainly it was something that came up yesterday when when we were discussing that 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 actual uh, topic, and then and because it's a fungal infection, if it gets mm. into an area, Geraldine, does it just spread? It can, like I mean, it's it's eleven years of the making. This this isn't something that it's, it's not like COVID that was sprung upon us. Like the got it came in and affected trees, so it's not of our making. In my opinion, they've had eleven years. Um, we'll see, which is over a decade, known that this was only going to get worse. And in my opinion, I felt that they could have ring fenced a fund to deal with this. And then they've had 11 years to put a bit aside and look at, isn't it better to be looking at the money than looking forward now? Here we are, mm, mm. In, in my opinion. And they could have easily have, we'll say, administered that out. Like I see there in actually Cork, um, uh, I was just doing a little bit of research and I see in the municipal district of uh, West Cork, they have a community hedge cutting grant scheme. Um, we don't have that in Galway here, which um, in, in Cork, I see you give 50, kilo, 50 euro per kilometre. And that scheme encourages joint and a joint approach with communities and group of local residents and landlords for the cutting of hedges, trees which need attention. We don't have that in Galway County Council. So what happens in Galway County Council? Typically, yes, you're supposed to cut your own hedges. We cut ours at home here. We pay a contractor down the road. He cuts it. But then... But it, it's, it's maybe it's a habit in Galway County Council. The council do a certain amount of it under our notice of motion monies. Each councillor gets, we get about 18,500 per year to do various, uh, oh, you know, bits and pieces. It could be flood alleviation. It could be lighting. It can be, you can spend that little bit of money. Each councillor gets that. So we, I have given up to 5,000 for hedge cutting. Um, so in one hand, they're saying that it's a responsibility as lender, but yet then we were given money over to cut hedges. And I, I just a think bit of, that a bit of joined up thinking is 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 what is needed. Yeah. Here. Somebody wants to know one, one, once a tree gets infected, Geraldine, is mm. there any way to treat it? Um, not that I know of. No, I mean it, it's a fungal. Um, there isn't no. There is not. I'm yeah. not known. It's a disease. That's it. I don't know of any known way of treating it. I mean, I'm sure if there was, that have been treating them. And you see, when you think of it, like I know when I was going to school, um, and you, you, I don't know. Back before 1993, you yeah. know, I would have remembered the council out cutting hedges and all of that. Absolutely. 1993 came then and then the responsibility was back in the land. So we've had 30 years of growth, really, in some of these trees. Some of these trees self-seeded. We, we, that's that's the reality of it. You didn't go and plant a big ash tree in, in, in the side of the road. I'm all for trees. We have a lot of trees planted in the farm. We, we planted them, various ones, not ash trees now, mind you. Um, but some of them have self-seeded. That's what has happened. So you have 30 years of growth there now since 1993. And all I'm asking for now is we see these huge risks. My background before I was ever a councillor would have been, um, you know, safety, construction, toolbox talks, all of that. So I would have been in that zone of safety and identifying a hazard. So now I've ident- we've all identified hazards going around the roads. All we're asking for is to help 
landowners, homeowners to deal with these. I tell you what now, it's it's no easy task taking down a tree. It's a very high risk job and it's for specialised people. Um, it's trees, Trisha, to be it's, honest it's, with you. It's, it's, you'd have to employ tree surgeons. These are very large trees. They're very large trees. And I and I know from my own family members, they'd be quite um, uh, proficient now in chainsaws and everything. But it's not for the faint hearted. And I, I, I saw a very good saying. It was in Oregon, actually. And it's, the saying was a good cut can save a life. A bad cut can take a life. And that yeah. really summed it up for me when it comes to the, the enormity of taking down trees. And if you have put, put into the bargain, then uh, weather conditions, wind, uh, rain, you've got ESB poles, you've got um, telephone poles, wires, road up. It's, it's not for the faint hearted. And all we were asking was they've had 11 years to prepare for this. As I said, it wasn't like COVID sprung upon us. They knew this was coming down the tracks. So governments, current, past, before that, go back, whatever, three, three, go back over the last three governments that have time to prepare for this and give each local authority uh, a fund that homeowners, landowners could apply to and deal with these huge, enormous hazards. That's all I'm asking for. Rather, joined than, up thinking. rather than, and we've seen dreadful accidents have happened oh God in, forbid. In, the, in the middle of storms. And is the landowner responsible if it, if damage is caused? Yeah, it's yeah. A, that, yes, the landowner is responsible and that is, um, that's it. And I mean, I know the council do their duty and they put out a notice in the public papers and they said, um, you know, we, we see these public notices. But at the end of the day, you drive around, people don't have the money. Like, I mean, I, I can only go on some of my own constituents. Some of the constituents are elderly. Their, pen, it's, their only income is derived from their pension. They would, it's thousands, it's three to five. I've met people that spend thousands on taking down these huge trees. Yeah, and um, as, as one listener is pointing out, the fact that it is a fungal infection, if it was just yeah. one isolated tree that you had to get rid of, but for many mm-hmm. landowners and farmers, they could end up having a number of trees that have to be felled. And that's where you're getting into big, big bills. It is. And it's the roadside trees, really. A, a, a tree within the middle of a field, you know what I mean? You can deal with that yeah. and, and whatever. But ones that have um, that are a huge safety issue for a roads, um, pedestrians, um, drivers, all of that, that that's that's the really is the big one. And I was trying to see, could it be proactive rather than react? God forbid, you know, we, we, we see the high winds we've got now over the summer. You, there, some of them, well, the, the ash trees, are, the leaves aren't as top heavy. The, the crown of the tree isn't as heavy maybe as it should be. Um, but still in all, when you get those high winds, I mean, there's people that don't sleep a wink at night when the high winds come because of the trees. But yet, it's such a mammoth task because of ESP poles, wires, all of that, that they just feel that they, they just do not have the money for it. Mm. They, they simply don't. Yeah, and I, I was just asking if they could come it, together and, and do that. Yeah, it's not like landowners and, and homeowners and, and farmers are ignoring the problem. It's just they simply no, they're can't, not. They can't afford it. So in the I, ideal world, some kind of a fund would be set up that would be run by local authorities. Is, is, is th- That's what you're I suggesting. I think that would be the best yeah. maybe to administer. Like when you see what Cork Municipal, Municipal District of West Cork have there, like as I said, we don't have that in Galway County. 50 euro a kilometre is quite good because you know you might only have a kilometer of of roadway and not every tree on that road might need to be dealt with do you know what i mean there might be various trees but the ash ones would have to be dealt with 
that they need help taking them down because I said it's a highly skilled job. Um, to go and and deal with all of that. Yeah, you certainly um, wouldn't be advising uh, homeowners or you wouldn't be no no no. You just couldn't um, rock up to a tree and think you're going to fell it because it's it's a it's it's quite dangerous as, as we I, all and know. I, and, and I read I read a statement from the Department of Agriculture saying there are mm. currently no plans for the Department of Agriculture, Food and Marine, yeah. to put in place a specific grant aid scheme for landowners mm. to fell roadside uh, trees. So uh, you're not you're, you're you haven't won on this one yet, Geraldine. I haven't won on that, and I suppose you know they come along then to say, well, you know, your boundary extends to the centre of the road. We hear all of this, you know, the the council and the verges. You, but yet when it comes to you know, and I know your 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 listeners are rural. When it comes to the area aid, and they'll know exactly what I'm talking about, the area aid doesn't extend to the middle of the road either. That's you right. know the grant scheme. Yeah. So if we got if the farmers. My, you know, they are brilliant for being proactive, and but they do need to be uh, compensated in some shape or form to deal with this. And as I said, the area doesn't extend to the centre of the road, so the hedge doesn't be included. That the area they'll shave off as much as they can off off a grant, um, rather than uh, give it some when they're doing the area the mapping of it. You know, for the, for the yeah. for various grants. So they, that's all I'm saying was if they could give. Um, some sort of a fund Just and let it be administered through the council and let land, let the homeowners and landowners apply to that, like which they have something similar there that will be administered, that they not every tree, well, it might have been taken out, but at least the ones that are highly dangerous. The reality is that not all ash trees, they might get immunity, see, over the years. Some ash trees might get a little bit of immunity, but the ones that you can see that are completely practically bare and God forbid, I, I don't know. They've had 11 years now to prepare for this. They knew it was coming down the tracks. So the least they could do is say, well, you know what? We're going to deal with this hazard now and we're going to um, work with the people and okay. try and do something for it. And I just think it would, it sends the right message that they're serious about road safety. You know, we, we're all serious about road safety, but this would be an extra measure. We all love our trees, don't get me wrong. If I'm sure if they give we're a only grant talking to about, some of the trees. Yeah, we're only talking about the dead and the damaged uh, The trees. dead ones. That's all we're all talking right. about. Not not taking out just the really the, the ones that are the high risk and that you can see they're okay. evident. They're all over the country, north and south. And um, I'm in on date with people actually. I had an article RT covered it last week, coincidentally, and uh, which was great and maybe a bit more awareness around that, but I'm I would be looking for um a very simple fund that could be administered. And I think we're, we're awash with money, we're told. I'm sure they could extend a little bit of money to that. OK, one listener says, well done uh, to the uh, Sturgeon Donoghue. She's the independent councillor where the Galway County Council councillor. They say they have no money yet. Thir- we're hearing today 31 million was spent on security mm. for the Joe Biden mm. visit. Uh, yeah, mm. a small fraction that, yeah. of that would be great. All right, Geraldine, listen, real pleasure talking to you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thanks for having and, me on. Uh, Thank thanks, you so much. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, bye bye. Uh, Geraldine Donoghue, independent councillor uh, with uh, Galway County Council. And actually somebody is pointing out when I mentioned about our landowners liable uh, for any damage. There was a case, it was back in 2015, of a Wicklow landowner and he was found liable for more than €3 million and that was after a tree on his land fell on a 19-year-old student's car. Now it left the poor uh, young student brain damaged. He lost the sight in one eye and partial sight in the other eye. Uh, So he... Three million was what it cost, so there is a liability on the landowner. Oh eight one eight one oh three one oh three. John Paul continues to take your calls. You can text or WhatsApp to oh eight six 
to uh, 103 103. Just a couple of other texts coming in. Patricia, farmers are whining again, looking for money for this ash tree dieback. They're getting enough. What next? Uh, will we get free timber from the farmers? I don't think so, says John. Well, John, I think listening to Geraldine, when they cut down these trees, there isn't much left to be burnt because of the inside. It rots from the inside um, out. Uh, hi, uh, Patricia. This is uh, Mike. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm listening to you talking about trees and the cutting down of trees, but the rules are not cutting hedge rows during the closed period this year has been broken by the council in my area and some landowners as well. The rules apply to most but not to all. In case you think it's a safety issue on the road I'm I'm talking about, it's not. It was cut to the roots about 10 kilometres. It was done in mid-July and then tarring followed in parts. If I was a farmer doing it, I'd be in trouble. Now I'm assuming if there was tarring going on that it had to be cut for that reason, was it? Because the, the rules do uh, say they can only be cut when it's a road safety issue and as we heard yesterday some farmers are going ahead believing it's a road safety issue and then they get caught because a different arm of the state comes after them saying that they shouldn't have done it so they're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't. John Paul continues to take your call so wait 181103. Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie And some of your thoughts coming into uh, us uh, on the fruit flies. Mary says, Patricia, if you put washing up liquid and cider vinegar into a jam jar and leave that out in the kitchen or wherever the fruit flies are, it attracts them. But then you end up with a jam jar full of dead flies. Mm. Anyway, thank you for that, Mary. On the budget that we spoke about earlier, hi Patricia, I am 70 years of age. I live on my own. I worked all my life for my family. I have three adult children. None of them called to me. Uh, so I hope that the budget will give us, the silent people, a rise in the majority. Thanking you. That's from John in the Cities. That's such a sad text. I, I just, I hate to see you. And, and you're not on your own, John. Families, for whatever reason, break down. Communication is lost and people don't end up speaking to other pe- uh, people. But it's, uh, it's hard to reflect on that if you've spent all your life raising your children and now none of them uh, call. It uh, fills me with great sadness, I have to say. And there's a lot of loneliness out there, hopefully, you're not in that car- in that category and that you've got good friends and you've got good neighbours and that you get out and about as much as you can. 0818103103. Hi Patricia, I don't know why people are saying that the country is awash and is swimming with money. We're not. We had 11 billion of a surplus last year before we spent 4.1 billion on a cost of living me- measures and then 6.9 billion on permanent social welfare measures and budget adjustments. Believe me, we don't have any spare money. And then somebody wants to disagree with Paddy who was outlining to us how society works and how you have children and then you it's the, the simple economics of having children was what Paddy said it's twofold. You, the, they're an investment in the country and it ensures its continuity and he went into how much it costs to raise a child. Somebody said I totally disagree with Paddy. People without children work harder than people with children. They pay more taxes and they get very little tax relief 
leave. Look at all the people in their 20s, 30s and 40s who have left this country. They were educated here. They have invested nothing back in this uh, country. Well, not everybody in their 20s, 30s and 40s leave. Some people leave and then they come back and you hope that one day they will uh, back reinvest in uh, the country. And then somebody wants to know, was it Quilta, a state body? who imported those infected ash trees. Shouldn't they pay for the tree damage? Now, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to look into I don't know a lot about ash tree dieback, except the devastation it does to the actual ash tree. And I know when it first got mentioned, because hurleys are made out of ash, aren't they? And there was a huge problem or a huge worrying concern for people who make the hurls that they wouldn't have the ash if this ash tree dieback uh, continued. But all I know is it was brought in and infected trees. I'd have to do a bit of research. I don't know if it was Quilt. I don't know. Maybe somebody out there in the know would be able to tell us who brought in those uh, infected uh, trees. Uh, Hi, Patricia. My mother, who is nearly 90 years of age, asked a registered tree surgeon to cut the top off one of her trees. She got quoted €1,200. How could anybody afford this? That was just to top a tree. It's an absolute disgrace, says Mary in Ballincollig. You see, it's very, very specialised. And you think of the risks involved that for tree surgeons. It, you know, it really is. It's a costly, costly affair to have any kind of work done like that on your trees. Um, they have to bring in, you know, special equipment and all of that. So, yeah, it, it isn't cheap uh, for sure. Hi, Patricia, quick question for you. If you have a two year contract for fibre with air are they allowed to put up the price during your contract time enjoying your programme well they announced in April of this year that an annual price increase will inc- will take place for air uh, and I think this is across I'm open to correction but I think it's across all of the phone uh, providers what it is is it's based on the annual consumer price index rate which is published in January of every year and then they add on an additional 3% now they do say that if the annual uh, consumer price index rate is negative or zero and we have a long chance of that happening then the annual price increase will just be the 3% um, so yeah, so and it comes in. It's February of every year, I think, uh, is when it comes in. Uh, but yes, they are allowed to do it. I know there was a huge hoo ha at the time about it, and people were saying, "I signed a contract. I can't believe that my price is uh, is in, is increasing." And people were not happy about it at all. But it was announced, and as I say, it was announced back in April of uh, this uh, year. Uh, 0818103103 uh, Still getting in a lot of uh, on the trees um, Mervyn in Bandon said I did not get a grant when we had to get our trees chopped down it cost me well over a thousand euro so why should farmers now be applying for any kind of a grant? Connor in Clonakilty says what happens if an ash tree falls on top of a passing car? Is it the landowner who is responsible, especially if the landowner is aware that the tree is affected? Well, I mentioned when I was speaking with uh, Geraldine about that case out of uh, County Wicklow that happened note this happened a number of years ago I don't know it was 2015 so we did have ash dieback in the country at that stage so I don't know if the tree was because of ash dieback but it was a tree fell on a car that was being driven by a 19 year old student and he was left with catastrophic injuries he was taken to court and found liable for 3 million euros so yes if a tree falls on top of a passing car it is the landowner 
is responsible and I think that's whether the tree was infected or not. It is up to landowners to keep an eye on their trees and uh, to make sure that they're not a threat uh, to the general public. Now that's where I leave you for today. Thanks to John Paul for producing. Nick Richards with you for the afternoon. Talk to you tomorrow at 10. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.